This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our show today on this beautiful San Diego morning, as usual, after Christmas. And I hope everybody had a fantastic holiday season with everyone that you love and people that you care about. We certainly did. Didn't we, Hannah? We had an absolutely fantastic day. It was a blast, yeah. And we were joking about this last week, of course, having sunshine around Christmas time. And it is, it is quite a thing to get used to when you have 80 degree weather when you're trying to pretend that there's snow on the Christmas tree. But however, it's a laugh and we had the family around and it was really, really great. And we extend that blessing to everybody around the world too from our studio today on the Honest to God series. Well, we have a really incredible guest today. In fact, our show is going to be running a little bit longer today because of our guest. And let us give you a little bit of background on this gentleman. We first heard him a few weeks ago on Coast to Coast Radio. It was actually the week before I was on, not too long ago. And his name is Gerald Clark. And Gerald Clark has written a book called The Anunnaki of Nibiru. And it is really his research, his very vast and extensive research, on the origins of human life on this planet. Now, we were fortunate to find out that Gerald lives in San Diego, along with us. So, of course, right away we invited him to come on the show, and he agreed. And then we got to meet him and his lovely wife last week at a restaurant. Very, very beautiful, down-to-earth, innocent, benign people working for our freedom. So, why we feel this is so important, because Gerald's book does go through our ancient history of our planet. Now, it does not go back to the source of all, of all life, but it does go, does cover the time that the Anunnaki race had come to Earth and basically created um, our human form to be slaves to mine their gold for their planet. In now, fact, Angel Rose, the, the uh, what would you call it, the subtitle on his book says Mankind's Forgotten Creators, Enslavers, Destroyers, Saviors, and Hidden Architects of the New World Order. Yes, and this is important, especially if you're part of our listeners who have listened to our various guests that we've had on this show since we've begun a couple of years ago. And you'll find that we are very, very interested in the expansion of our human consciousness, in the activating of our potential, basically becoming free and sovereign beings. And this is also the motivation for our Sunday Akashic groups that we have, where we invite listeners to register and come on and be a part of those groups where we do ask these very, very high and spiritual questions of source itself. And, you know, and I've often said in the records that I am talking to source itself, the creator of all that seems to answer us. So this is interesting because 
it's all centered around freeing ourselves from this enslavement and bondage that we as a human race have been in for many, many, many cycles. And so Gerald Clark has done his own aspect of research into our origins. It's backed up by facts and discoveries. It does go into who was who back in the day, who were the gods that we believed were the big gods who turned out to be the smaller gods who did create the human species and left out key genetic aspects of us that would have allowed us to live indefinitely. And so there's a lot in here, everyone. So you will hear Gerald speak about the lineage of the gods, who was who and who they were later, and how they've all continued on and indeed are part of this ongoing battle that we have right now going on in our world between light and dark, between enslavement and freedom that we see evidence now. And it's a must, if you're listening, please try to stay tuned to the whole entire show because it's certain to get you activated and turn on a few light bulbs. And to some people, it'll be shocking. Other people, it'll it'll put the pieces together. So we really look forward to having Gerald on today. Well, we have with us Gerald Clark. Gerald Clark is the author of an absolutely wonderful book called The Anunnaki of Nibiru. And it's Mankind's Forgotten Creators, Enslavers, Destroyers, Saviors, and Hidden Architects of the New World Order. And we are so much looking forward to getting into a riveting discussion about this time of year and what it means and Mankind's Slavers and how we're all sucked into various belief systems and have allowed ourselves in lots of ways too to become enslaved ourselves willingly or unwillingly. So Gerald, come on and let's say hello. Hey, I uh, want to say hello to all your listeners, and welcome to you and Angel Rose as well. Discussion tonight is very, very important because it does have to do with our origins as a human race, and it also has to do with what's going on in our world today. And many of us who come on this radio show and listen, we're all part of the movement into what we perceive as freedom. So it'll be interesting to listen to Gerald tonight talk to us about this subject to see just exactly if we're making any progress, if it's possible to make progress. So we're really, really looking forward, Gerald, to getting into this discussion. But first I'm going to have Ahanu give our listeners a little bit of history about you. So go ahead, Ahanu. The thing that fascinated me about Gerald was, of course, the fact that You've done an amazing amount of background work and one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, of course, is not only that history, but your own history in terms of how you began to uncover this information. And we will talk a little bit about Sumerian history. We'll talk about the evidence of the Anunnaki on Earth today and all of the work that you've done to uncover the information about Earth's energy, matter and consciousness and also how you uncovered a lot of this information about Gilgamesh and the the being who we know as Noah. And then we hopefully will also talk about eternal life, celestial time, and how these warring factions are playing out in our past and present. And then, of course, the uh, Greek and Roman pantheon of the gods, Zeus and Apollo and all these guys, and the new Atlantis and more. 
So we're really looking forward to getting into the work that you've done on uncovering this amazing body of information. So can you start, Gerald, by telling us a little bit about how you came across this information? What motivated you to continue and to write your book called The Anunnaki of Nibiru? Well, thanks, Ahana. It started with a a relationship that I had with a a vendor that I was working with in Turkey. So while I was working as a VP of engineering at Lightpoint Communications, uh, we were in the free space optics business, and uh, I had met a gentleman who I was doing a patent with uh, in Istanbul. And through that process, I realized I didn't really know very much about history. I wasn't a big fan of history, actually, at that point. As an engineer, it just wasn't high on my list. But uh, given the, the history of that area and it being the capital of the East Roman Empire, uh, it seemed to me it, it was a good place to start. So through some readings, I, I, I found a few nuggets to share with my client. And through that process, I, I found that uh, uh, some of the architectural designs and some of the gods that were venerated way back by the Hittites that occupied that area had connections over into Samaria. And I really didn't know that much about Samaria. I'd heard a little bit about uh, it on the History Channel. Uh, and then I, it spawned me to start uh, uh, reading some more books about the, the region. And, and that's where I got turned on to Zechariah Sitchin's work. For our listeners, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about who Zechariah Sitchin is <clears throat> and then go ahead and springboard off of that into what happened next? Okay. Well, uh so I was uh, I was researching in this, uh, and, and let me let me back up by saying I was interested in technology, and I had seen a few architectural and linguistic things that had gone on. They call them OO parts, out of ordinary things in place and time, but that just don't fit. Well, this this was true as well for me when I saw a thousand plus uh, stones in the third rung of the wall in Baalbek, Lebanon, and we couldn't even do that today. So there were certain things in the past that spawned me to go, hey, you know, there must be some lost knowledge. So I was also interested from that standpoint as well. And uh, so I was looking into uh, ancient history in that sense and tried to figure out where, where to start. And while I was reading the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, it backed up the timeline for me all the way from 3100 B.C. that we knew about in uh, Egypt uh, back all the way to approximately 12,000 BC, 9 to 12,000. And this seems to coincide with the same age that uh, we've ascribed to the uh, Gobekli Tepe uh, architecture that's been found in Turkey as well. So all of a sudden, I realized I was uh, in an area where the, it looks like the history of mankind all of a sudden didn't match with what we'd been told. So th- this spurred me on just a little bit more. And, and through this research, I stumbled across Zechariah Sitchin's book, which he, he published it in 1978, and it was The Twelfth Planet. So I, re- I read this book and was just astounded by the information there because it seemed to, seemed to have links with uh, and crossovers with these uh, deities that were venerated in Turkey that also, through, through time, I discovered they were also the same deities that showed up in the Mesopotamian pantheon. So, and I say pantheon because there, there was a group of 12 of them. So, uh, so, so through this, wanting to write a book of my own about ancient technology and then working with this Turkish client and looking into their culture, I realized I'd stumbled onto some symbology that uh, needed explaining about the moon god and who that was, because that uh, clearly that was the, the god that was being worshipped in Islam as Allah. Yes. And here's a question now, Gerald. Coming from Ireland, you know, our landscape in Ireland is simply dotted with uh, megalithic tombs and stone circles and all kinds of 
various buildings of, of ancient times. And the explanation, the current modern explanation for that is that these, these were uh, farming, farming people, peasants, ignorant people who somehow these buildings, they, they managed to appear out of nowhere, but there's, there's no explanation other than they were just megalithic peoples. It's a huge gap in understanding. And then, of course, when we move into the modern under, uh, belief system of many religions, and especially, of course, the, the big one, Christianity, will tell us, oh, you know, humans are only 2,000 years old, birth of Christ, that's it, you know, that's when everything happened. And yet you talked about 12,000 years old. And in in your book, The Anunnaki of Nibiru, you talk about 26,000 years ago, and then 300,000 years ago, and 400,000 years ago. These massive amounts of time spans, are we able to really comprehend it? And is there is there real evidence that we have been visited by extraterrestrial beings? And have they left their mark? And these megalithic tombs and various other buildings and walls and, and uh, monuments we find around the planet, are they the evidence that we need? Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, when you look at some of these uh, structures and you realize that they, A, knew how to orient them to north, south, east, and west, and also that they were intended, intentionally architected to capture a point in time where the sun rose at a specific point in the, in the, in its procession, whether it was a solstice point or an equinox point. Now that in and of itself, if you'd sit down and think about, now how would you, how would you determine these alignments and such? You know, and why, and why was this so important to them? So you start looking around all across the world where these megalithic structures show up. And the similarity in some of the structures, for instance, the the 52-degree angle on the Giza Pyramid shows up in the step pyramids in, in the Yucatan as well, and similar base sizes, and, <clears throat> and there are theories about uh, architecturally how they could be similar. But, uh, but I think uh, many of them were designed so that the Anunnaki Council could determine when they were in the correct zodiacal house to... Establish a sort of uh, term limits in their in their ruling um, assignments on the Anunnaki Council. So I might overstep a little bit far and t- talk a little bit too much about this council. So we we probably got to back up just a little bit, talk about who these guys were to the Sumerians. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> so the Sumerians stated in their in their writings, which show up on clay tablets, some of them were baked and some of them were not. The ones that were baked lasted a lot longer than the ones that weren't. But we have tens of thousands of these, probably hundreds of thousands, if somebody were to actually be able, in a position to count them. Mm-hmm. And they told us that through their ordinary birth records and uh, contracts and, and deeds and various things, they recorded pretty much their entire life on, on clay. But it intermixed with that were some very seminal documents that they pointed us to, and Zechariah Sitchin pointed us to them as well. And one of those was the Atrahasis. And that turns out to be the name of uh, someone who uh, was related to one of these uh, Niburians that came from uh, came from their planet to our planet to mine gold. So, uh, so that in that Genesis account, uh, when they go back four hundred fifty thousand years ago, which which very interestingly aligns very closely to the Sumerian Kings list, if you've looked at it. Mm-hmm. So, the Sumerian Kings list, according to Barassus, goes back four hundred thirty-two thousand years. And it turns out it coincides, of course, with the Sumerians who, under Enki, 
established this civilization and reestablished it in 3800 BC. The very first time they, they built any building in the Mesopotamian region was 450,000 years ago, and that was the city of Eridu. And that's the same city that shows up in the Sumerian king's list that said uh, Alulim was allocated and given, given kingship there the very first time. Now, when you say re-established in the year 3600, how can somebody span that, that, that length of time? I mean, did these guys, were these guys immortal or were they coming and going or? That's a very good question. Were they immortal? Um, it looked to be that they genetically were a superset of us. And, and we probably ought to talk about that, that, that they claimed in these Sumerian records that they were our creators in South Africa to replace right. an existing set of miners that they brought along. Now, according to their records, they were treated as gods and immortal uh, and, and venerated in all the temples in Mesopotamia. And we knew who they were. And each city had a different one. And it turns out they were all related to each other <laughs> for the most part. And, uh, and this, this council that we're describing had uh, 12 of them. And, and we, so we ask ourselves, were they immortal? Let's 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 go down the list of the, some of them that we believe were full blown Anunnaki. They were not demigods. These ones, uh, according to their records, they were full blown Niburians. And let's look at their lifespans. There were nine or ten of them. I don't, I don't recall. I know there were at least nine of them in the first uh, segment of the Sumerians' king list. And in that segment, they give they tell who the king was, how long they ruled, and interestingly enough, they give it in terms of shars which is a 3,600-year period. Now, you ask, why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, according to them, that was a, a length of their year, how long it took their planet to go in its retrograde orbit around the sun. Right. So so in that list, uh, the very first one that we mentioned, his name was Alulim, and he was assigned kingship in the city of Eridu. Well, we know that was the first city that Enki said that he built, so it kind of kind of correlates. Now, this is this is the list put together by Barossus, the, the Greek historian. I'm the Babylonian historian, I'm sorry. He wrote down the history of the Babylonians for the Greeks. So we're all the way back to 450,000 years ago. Okay. Um, let's, see. Uh, let's see. Where did I leave off there? Ahanu. Yeah, you were talking about the, the king's list, the, the oh, original. The king's list, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. original Anunnaki right, king. Right, so, so Alolim was king. And uh, he was, in his, his reign, this is the most astonishing part. He, he his reign was twenty eight thousand eight hundred years. Wow! Now that's like, now that's just the time he ruled. That's not how long he lived. Yes. So all of a sudden you ask yourself, okay, well if you could live that long, is it not the case that you figured out immortality, or at least how to perpetuate your DNA way beyond anything that the primitive workers on the or the humans on this planet? Yes. Done? So it so relative to us, they would have looked immortal, even if they only lived. 10,000 years. Well, here, here's sure, one live 28,000 years. And even, is so, that anyway. actually documented then in these clay cuneiform tablets that, that he did live or reigned that long? I mean, or, or is it, do you think it might be just a story, you know, that they might just embellish it in, in lots of ways and say this guy lived for so many thousands of years when in fact he may have lived much shorter? Well, it wasn't just him. Uh, right. It was him and uh, the other remaining eight or nine rulers uh, also lived just as long. So, right. Uh, now, wh what would they gain by embellishing this? And uh, I don't know what they would have to gain. Uh, yes. And it turned out that, you know, as genetics seem to get somewhat diluted in our canonical Bible in the Genesis 4 and 6 account, you have Lamech and Noah and Methuselah and Enoch living hundreds of years. 
you know so so you can ask yourself well is that is that a is that a stretch too yes so it seemed to me that if you just kind of put two and two together if they had pure niburian genetics apparently they had something that was producing enough telomerase in their body so they weren't so their dna wasn't deteriorating you know just like a just like a, a one of the giant uh, redwood trees in northern california you know these these have genetics such that the, the tree will not die for thousands of years it, will, it just won't die unless it's destroyed somehow yeah. Uh, so there is there is this the idea of DNA that can reproduce itself without without deteriorating, and they seem to have that knowledge. So Gerald, can you tell me then how did they go from let's say the twenty eight thousand years that you just mentioned to only living three or four hundred years, as reported in the Bible with some of those people back then? That's well, a big difference. Absolutely, it's a big difference. Well. You start to it start you start to get the idea of this genetic mixing and what the potential of it is through the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and that's one of the other documents that I refer to in my book because it introduces us to who the characters were on this Anunnaki Council of Twelve. And maybe we ought to run through that just real quick to get the major players down, uh, the ones that show up in the Genesis in the Genesis account. Okay. Okay. Yep. Is that okay? Okay. Yes. So we so we have the head of the council. Uh, his name was Anu. Now, now we got to pick a point in time. Councils change, right? So, so we're going to pick a point in time and say these are the ones that we know of that were on the council at that point. <clears throat> Further in time, it turns out they were the same beings on the Greek pantheon. So we have another point in time where we can say, okay, this was the composition of the council then. And it turns out if you pay attention, the composition of the council is a function of the which zodiacal house you're in. Because each time the zodiacal house changes, their council changes. Okay. Okay, so the head of the council was Anu, and his rank was 60. Um, his wife was Antu, and her rank was 55. So the reason I'm going to point out a few females at the head of the council is because they alternated male-female, so there were six males and six females. The even ranks, like 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, were males, and then the odd ranks were females. Okay, so the major players were Anu and his, two, and his actually three kids. There was Enlil, who was the Lord of the Command. He was uh, given charge of the Earth and the the functions that were that were involved in c- command and control. I guess is the easiest way to say it. So, uh, and his rank was was fifty at the time, and we're at thirty seven sixty BCE and and prior at this point. <clears throat> uh, and 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 I have no visibility into what their council composition was for every single. Zodiacal house change all the way back to 432,000 years. I wish I did. That would be an amazing document to put sure. together. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, so it's in the back of my mind, but it would be nice to know. But relatively human, since we weren't around, doesn't really matter. Uh, so from the Sumerian kings list forward is kind of where it really impacts us. So let's go down to the next rank, and the next rank was 40, and that was Enki's rank. So Enki and Enlil, these are the two primary players that uh, are opposed to each other, and they're and they're and they do not generally seem to get along. And then the the other um, person on the council, her rank was 15 at the time, was Nin Hartzog, and she was known as Isis. And she was Enki and Enlil's half-sister and played a seminal role in the Atrahasis account where the description of the of our our creation occurred. So that's kind of the council composition to okay. give you, well, let, give let, you an idea. Let mm-hmm. me just ask a quick question in there. Okay. Uh, those, those big 
gods, let's call them, with a small g, <laughs> the big gods with a small g, were they the same guys as in the Greek pantheon that we're familiar with, or even the Roman gods and goddesses, or the Norse gods and goddesses? Are they more or less the same people throughout all those cultures? Well, it turns out they are, and this is one of the, the, the aha moments that you <coughs> that, that I discovered in starting to look into who the moon god was when I when I was looking at the amazing temples in in Turkey. So kind of so if you find one of them that all of a sudden looks like the same being across a couple of cultures, first of all, you would never expect that because how yes. could they live that long, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but all of a sudden if you start from the knowledge that genetically they could live that long and if they just change their name to uh, in a different major cultures, all of a sudden, you know, you wouldn't know who they are and they could t- they could take on and do do something else or be another you know attribute that they wanted to do so it was it was kind of a, a strange namesake hiding thing that went on yeah. so let, let's pick one so in the city of ur we find out that Terra, who's abram's father is the chief priest to the the deity that has a temple there and we know which temples are there there was a white temple of anu and there was a temple to um enlil and there was a temple to uh, Inanna there. Okay, so there were at least three temples in the city of Uruk. Okay, well, the, the primary one was Enlil's temple. And he was the one who uh, Ab- Abram and, or, or Terra, Abram's father, served directly. And it turns out he's the same one that told him to leave that area and go to the land of Canaan. So, you know, this is, so all of a sudden you find out Enlil equals Yahweh, equals Jehovah. Right. So in the in and then you project forward out of the Levantine and all the canonical writings about who he was, where he promoted himself as God, others did as well. Um, we know that in the Greek pantheon, he was the head of the council, and his name was Zeus. Right. So now all of a sudden you realize Enel is Zeus is Yahweh, and then it starts to make sense. And the attributes for each of them through the various cultures that they show up in uh, turn out to be the same. Uh, also, in in the you mentioned the Roman culture. Well, he was known as Jupiter in the Roman culture. So right. when when the temp, when Baalbek, Lebanon, that temple there was uh, re reacquired by the Romans in 86 A.D., they built they built the temple of Jupiter on top of that you know that structure to to show that he was the head of not only what was going on in Rome, but uh, he was the head god of uh, of that pantheon. So you're you're hinting at a huge deception here, Gerald, when you speak, for example, about Yahweh, because we know from a biblical perspective that he was the one on on the mountain that rained fire down upon the people and all of that kind of stuff. And right. It is more seemingly more a god of 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 harsh words and and war rather than love. And forgiveness. So, are you saying that this was Enlil, who was the guy who's who's now promoting war and and terror around the planet, even up to this day? Uh, I am. And actually, if we go back to the Atrahasis to establish where the genesis of this conflict between these two archetypal players, Enlil and Enki, started, well, it started in South Africa in the mines when the uh, when the primitive worker was. Created that was us by Enki and his half and his half sister Ninhartsog, who was the medical officer. That remember I mentioned there were three kids of Enel or of Anu that were on the planet: Enel, Enki, and Ninhartsog. Well, and she, she was, was the half sister. She, she was Isis. Very, very important. Well, let's yeah. So, so let's do a couple of names with her. 
She was known as Ninma, Mammy, Ninhartsog, and Isis, uh, just to name a few. So she had several names as well. Now remember, if these beings are living a long time across cultures, uh, they can have different names in those cultures, but you kind of look at their attributes. And, and I, she in particular told you who she was on a, on a, uh, <clears throat> on a stone, um, pedestal in Rome where she told you the various names of who she was in various cultures. And she said, she goes, you know, she started in the Roman culture and worked all the way back to Mesopotamia or in Egypt. And she said, where I was known as, as Queen Isis. So she, you know, so, so they kind of told us who they were. And if you, and then you start realizing they were brothers and sisters on this council and then you can start putting it together. So I put a table in my book, um, uh, table nine to try to show people, you know, what their various names were. And, and Rob Salarian is another uh, author. He wrote the book, um, Isis, Osiris, and Planet X. And in that book, he has a table that goes into some of the Nordic cultures and some of the Asian cultures as well of what he, who he believed these people were. So, you know, and, 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 and realize when you're looking at these tables that, uh, the fact that they were trying to hide their names made it almost impossible to get the tables exactly right. But if you could get one of them across two or three cultures and it, and it, and it fit, all the other ones kind of fell out, and you'll see that in Table Nine. It'll make sense to you. So, for, so let's go. Let's do Enki. Well, let's just pause there just for a moment, Gerald, simply to remind our listeners that we are speaking to Gerald Clark, and the book he speaks of is his book called The Anunnaki of Nibiru. Thanks, Ahanu. So, uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to also mention some of the other names for Enki because he was uh, the arch nemesis to Enlil, even showing up in the Garden of Eden account. So Enki's rank was 40, as we recall. He was a lower rank than Enlil, who was, whose rank was 50. And so Enki ended up being the Lord of the Waters. Well, in the Greek culture, we know who the Lord of the Waters was. That was Poseidon. So his other name was Poseidon. And, 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 uh, he was uh, his planet of assignment in the Enuma Elish, which was their creation account. And we can talk a little bit about that one as well. He shows up as EA Enki. Another name for him was Nudimud. And his planet was Neptune. So now all of a sudden we have these, 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 these gods on little, with a little g on this council that uh, also are, pl- are claiming their names and affiliating with various planets. So while we're talking about the concept of gods and creators, I wanted to throw in the idea for those who are starting to reel from this information that in actuality, even though whether whether the Sumerians venerated them as gods or they had themselves venerated and, and elevated. Either way, <clears throat> we know that uh, from their accounts that they mentioned that there was still another creator, much greater than they, that they, meant, they referred to as the creator of all, who was responsible for the seeds of all life, and all life through the, through the universe was accredited to this being. So um, <clears throat> So now all of a sudden... Here is mankind were not only a mix between Neanderthal and the Anunnaki, but this, this Neanderthal seed clearly came from the creator of all. And we don't know how many times it was interceded with by how many other potential species, uh, alien species that have been operating on this planet. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so it, it, you know, we may never know our true Yes, but I suppose it, it's no accident either that the DNA research that has been done on the human that they found it originated in Africa, supposedly. But that ties in perfectly with these cuneiform tablets from Sumeria, as you say, where Enki was 
more or less experimenting and uh, swapping out DNA with Neanderthal. Exactly. And, and something really exciting has happened in just the last couple of years. <clears throat> uh, I mean, much credit goes to, uh, Michael Tellinger for taking, you know, sticking his neck out and moving down to Africa and, and looking for the structures that the Sumerians mentioned were along, uh, coincident with these gold mines that there were thousands of them in, in starting all the way up, uh, uh, along the southeastern part, along the Zambezi River, and extending southward into the into the country, there's lots and lots of gold mines there, and and companies are still working them today. Uh, but so just recently, because of technology, we've been able to do something we've never been able to do before. And you can actually you can actually zoom in on Google Earth and take your computer and take a virtual tour of South Africa and start to see all of the stone structures, the circular structures that surround these gold mines. Which clearly were housing people that were, that were connected together and working as a community in these mines, just as the Sumerians said they were. And as you mentioned in the, in the DNA study, uh, there were a couple of studies done that, that linked us to that same area. Uh, one of them, uh, tracked the, 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 uh, mitochondrial DNA of, uh, of our ancestors to see where originally the Eve came from. And this was a, this is a well, well known and published genetic study that took us back. And I'm doing this from recollection. It was anywhere from 200 to 220,000 years ago in the same southeastern area of Africa. Okay. And, and recall, you know, Lewis and Leakey and the various archaeologists found, uh, uh, the very first evidence of bipedal hominids in South Africa. So it wasn't a surprise that this, that this was, a, that this occurred there. And the same thing happened with the Y chromosome study that looked at the, the mutations of the Y chromosome that took us back for the, for the, for the genetic atom or where he came from. Well, it was in a similar area in a similar time frame. So the idea that, uh, in the Atrahasis where they told us in the house of Shimti in Africa that Anki and his half sister took a, a bipedal hominid they found on the steppes of Africa and did in vitro fertilization with uh, the, the egg of, the, of one of the females Implanted it in Herzog and birthed the child. So <laughs> this is this is in their record that they did that. Now it, we used to treat it as myth that this occurred because we were probably you know a hundred years ago probably not at the place where we were we even understood in vitro fertilization and those kind of things. And look how far we've come. The fact that we can travel to other uh, planets with our probes and such, we understand interplanetary travel and uh, we understand genetics and to the point where these kind of issues are n not shocking to us. So now all of a sudden we could recognize in the writings something that could have potentially happened and they have the same knowledge that we have now. So, yes. Yeah. So, so Gerald, where's, where's Jesus in all of this? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. So, so in this, let, let's go, let's go into this account and we want let, and establish the nature of the two primary players and it'll, it'll then the, the relationship of Jesus to them should fall out naturally if you if you if you see it the way I see it. And, you know, uh, let me just lay it out there for, for you. In the Atrahasis, after 600 years of this primitive worker program, where these uh, these uh these uh primitive beings that the Anunnaki had created to replace the miners had uh, had started to proliferate, and according to their account, Enlil wasn't happy about this. Well, now I have to recall that Enlil wasn't directly involved in the creation account. It was Anki and his half-sister Nin Hartzog. 
Okay, so Enlil was on the on the council. He was ranked 50. His father Anu was ranked 60, but they all agreed in the Atrahasis. The council agreed to allow this genetic augmentation to occur. Okay, so but but keep in mind that Enlil was not directly involved. He was not a geneticist. He was he was like a military commander, whereas Enki was more like a, a scientist, and his sister was more like a a medical doctor. Right. Okay, so so it made sense for those two to be doing this task. Well, after 600 years of the primitive breeder working pro- uh, breeding program, according to the Octahasis account, Enola had had enough, and he called a council meeting to uh, ha- introduce a disease to cull the population. Now, you just think about that in and of itself. What kind of person would would introduce a disease to a, a slave species that they'd created in order to cull them out? I mean, this is abominable <laughs> to oh, even dear. know that. And that's going I on mean, today. We, well, we, yeah. Now, this is where it gets a little scary. They right. name what the disease was, and it was called a Saku disease. Uh, it did its dirty deed, didn't do enough, and very shortly thereafter, um, Atrahasis, who saw what was happening to his people, ran to uh, the great god Enki, with a little g, <laughs> and said, hey, uh, you know, what can we do about this? How do we protect ourselves? And, uh, and, and he gave him counsel on how to respond to this. He did that, and it seemed to work. Here comes another onslaught from Enlil. This time it was Sarupu disease that apparently affected a woman's ability to have babies. Uh, very, and it was very, very destructive. So here, whoever this high-ranking person was on the council is trying to wipe out these primitive workers, and his justification is in the, the account directly is because they're noisy and he can't get any sleep. Now imagine that. Wow. I mean... Could somebody not give him some earplugs or, yeah, or some, do some soundproofing on his temple that these <laughs> slaves probably built for him? You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. really kind of, so you're starting to see the nature and the spirit of this being. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't, that was just the, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so then he cut off the food supply and then he cut off the water. And after six years of that, uh, the people resorted to cannibalism. It was disgusting. Really, really disgusting. And, and that wasn't enough for him. Yeah, after that, that's when he asked his brother, actually ordered his brother to bring a flood to wipe out the rest of them. So this, is the, this is the biblical flood that we're familiar with. Exactly. So it turns out that uh, every 3,600 years, as their planet came in uh, between uh, Mars and Jupiter, it would drag some of the debris from what they called the hammered bracelets or the asteroid belt in with it. And this is a large planet that's approximately four times the size of the Earth in a retrograde orbit that, like we said, takes 3,600 years, according to them. Well, if you know, if it came in and went into close perihelion with the sun and then exited and, and, and did anything across the anywhere close to the Earth, depending on where the Earth was at the time, it could really get clobbered. Yes. And so through those perturbations, according to them, they were monitoring uh, their Earth, their planet coming by. And Enlil knew that... Uh, but because of the aggregation of the ice at the at the north and the south pole on a splint, spinning planet, that if you tilted the Earth slightly, the asymmetry of those ice, the ice shield on the north and south pole would translate into torsion into the sheets of the Earth, and it could cause a plate tectonic shift very rapidly. Okay, this is uh, Charles Hapgood's theory right. in his book that that uh, Einstein also agreed with him that this is how Greenland ended up where it was. You know, with, with a with a mammoth with with a tropical uh, foliage in its mouth, frozen overnight. You know, right. so the only way this could happen is with a sudden climate shift like that. 
And so, uh, so they were monitoring the South Pole and in their account, in the Ahatrahasis, they stated, and actually it's in the Lost Pick of Inky as well, um, that the South Pole ice sheet started breaking apart. Um, it caused a massive tsunami when it did break, uh, that flooded, uh, the Mesopotamian region as this wave headed north. Well, that, that Anunnaki knew about this and, uh, and they had sworn uh, an oath to keep quiet about it in order to allow the, all the humans to be wiped out. This was according to Enlil's wishes. Mm-hmm. Well, Enki wasn't good with that, especially since his, uh, the person who was running interference on behalf of the people was him, and it turned out that his liaison, who was the king of the city of Sharupak, was Atrahasis, who was Noah, who was, who was the king. Okay, So his son, the king, in the city of Sharupak, got warned that uh, this this flood was coming and that he was to build a boat and to, and to save him. So, so Enki, Enki saved his son, uh, Zia Sudra, who became, uh, uh, on Mount Ararat at the end of the account. And, and this, this is, is the Noah where, that we're familiar with. That's exactly right. This is the Noah. This is the, and they were, listen, according to the Egyptian priests from the city of Sais that were in the Acritius account speaking with Solon, uh, he was the he was from Greece, who was seeking out the history of their country. There were there were there were many floods. According to them, there were four major ones and ma- and many minor ones in that area. So I think Mesopotamia got wiped out several several times, and I think they just got brave enough at, in 3800 BCE to rebuild a pot back on top of it. So, but but if you notice where they moved their mission control center and their spaceport, they moved it back up to higher ground. So uh, that's how we ended up in Baalbek in Jerusalem. So what's the significance of that area? In, uh, and I specifically mean, say, Israel and Palestine and that whole volatile Middle East area. How does that relate now to what went on all those thousands of years ago? Well, as of about 3760 BCE, um, and that, the reason I focus on that particular time and the council composition at that time is that it appears to be when they stopped relating Niburian time to Earth time and <clears throat> established a new calendar, which was which was the Hebrew cal- the uh, Niburian calendar that the Jewish peoples are still using today. Okay, so the so that from, that right. was from the city of Nippur. Right. Okay, so uh, about that time, uh, Anu visited Earth and separated uh, his warring kids. So he separated the very four important regions according to their account and that was mesopotamia which enlil got so he got he got the city of ur and everything between the tigris and euphrates um, up in baghdad that whole area was his okay and then and including the sinai peninsula now according to them ned hartsog was given the sinai peninsula but enlil treated it as his own okay so the, the sinai was just for the anunnaki because that's where their spaceport was Okay, and then uh, all of Africa was given to Enki, and then the Indus Valley, interestingly enough, was given to Inanna. This was uh, Anu's favorite granddaughter. I left her out in the in the in the creation account, but she she was uh she was kind of a warring uh, a warring entity, kind of a she was the, she's the archetype that Xena warrior princess is based on right. is Inanna, yes, Beauti- yes, a beautiful yes. warrior. Yeah, yeah. So she and, and according to the account, she was she was vicious. So. Uh, I don't, I don't, I want to give her any credence of where it wasn't due, but <laughs> <laughs> so they split up these four regions. Uh, and, uh, so we kind of knew based on their symbols and their flags who was in what region. And, and they were very polarized. They did not get along. I mean, it even came to the point where, um, 
And I, and I call them the Enkiites and the Enlilites in order to separate them. So Enki and Enlil ended up staying on the earth. Anu went back to Nuburu. And so Enki and his offspring, we call the Enkiites, and Enlil and his offspring, we call the Enlilites. Not, not that I'm signing up to, you know, duality thinking <laughs> and that it's a football game, but it helps kind of keep track of who did what to whom. Uh, to understand the history a little better. Yeah, yeah, and it's necessary to simplify it for us, so as we, we right. Can... Uh, so knowing that knowing that all of Egypt was given to Enki, we can all of a sudden now go, oh, okay, all right. So we know that Ra uh, was a, was an Egyptian god. Well, he had to be, had to be an Enki. Right? We now know that that was Marduk. Okay, uh, we know that Ta was a was one of the Egyptian gods, the very first one that was assigned to the first dynasty of Egypt by Manetho. And he ruled for nine thousand years, and that was that was Enki himself, P T A H. That was his Egyptian name. Yes, we know about him. Yeah, yeah. There, huh. <laughs> and of course, there was Ninhartzog, who was Isis. And down there, okay, okay. So, so now you kind of get the idea that. Well, so, so, and there was one other one that was really important, and that was Enki's second son, Ningshida. Well, it turns out he, in the early accounts, was the one who did the genetic upgrade on the first Adam and Eve beings so that they could they could procreate and so he turned out to be the being named thoth okay and uh, it, and and he's so important he was a, he was uh he and a uh one other being named demuzi were assigned to a company um the first adapa who was created by enki himself taking a tablet from enki to go meet their father on naburu and basically explain the design constraints that that had, that had been used to to create this chimera, this primitive worker. So so this Ningshida person, Thoth, turned out to be a very, very, very important being relative to mankind because not only did he give us the genetic upgrade and carried the caduceus, but he played the messenger of the gods role, but he was ordered by Enki and Enlil's father to be mankind's teacher. <clears throat> right. That's so important. So, so important when you realize that he was ordered to do that. So these mystery schools that showed up in Egypt, where he was the head of them, what yes. was he there? What was he there teaching them? That he makes was, sense. He was teaching them how to evolve their consciousness, come out of this primitive worker state that they'd been held in by Enlil in the mines, and and take on the consciousness that they were designed to have by by Enki himself. So <clears throat> that that in itself was the genesis of much conflict because. Enlil did not want the primitive workers being anything but primitive workers. Right. <laughs> so the idea of, yeah, that's right. So the idea of thinking about math or painting a painting or any of that that you, it involves higher functions of the brain, not interested. He yeah. wanted us as primitive slaves. And he, and he didn't even want us here at all for, for the most part. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> so, so, you know, we didn't really finish up that account. What, so what happens? So this flood comes and we end up with supposedly um, one being left. Well, it turns out that um, Atrahasis and his whole family survived on Ararat, and Enlil found them there and was very, very furious. Well, in that account, um, that's where we found out that Atrahasis, who was Zia Sudra, who was Noah, all these different names for him, uh, was actually Enki's son because they admitted it in the account to to his brother. It was just kind of inferred before, but once we saw that in writing, it, the entire account made sense. So now yes. you're, now you're like, now you realize the person that created us, the being that created us had a son, and that son wrote an account about what really went down between him and his father, 
that ended up with most humans being wiped off this planet. And he told it in his almost a first person account. That's the Atrahasis. Wow. And Very. If- and so I so I view that document as probably one of the most important documents any human. And can you correlate that, Gerald? You know, can you more or less map that onto the Genesis account in the Bible? <clears throat> okay. Well, we can do it by understanding, first of all, that there were warring factions that we started to describe, some of which landed in the Levantine. This was this was in the Analyte camp landed in the Levantine. Okay. Well, just just uh, just down the down the way a piece across the the Tigris and Euphrates was uh, Babylon, and this was Marduk's uh, city. Well, first of all, Marduk was an Enkiite. He had, and he should have left the the Mesopotamian region and gone to Africa or some other place that wasn't contentious and owned by Enlil. Because if if, if en- Enki and Enlil were going at it, for sure, if Marduk stayed there, it was going to cause problems. And it certainly did, and actually it led to what was called the First Pyramid Wars between Marduk and Ninurta. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Marduk stayed, and and he abs- he absolutely had vowed uh, some some revengeful act to uh, smite the Enlilites because he he viewed whatever happened in the uh, the the Niburian inheritance rights whether it was on back on their planet or something that happened on the earth, that something had been averted and he believed his father should have been in charge. And this was Enki. So Enki was down in Africa and all this is going on. Well, Marduk ended up in major, major battles and skirmishes against the Enlilites. And you, and you read about this in the wars of the gods of the East. And uh, he ended up having a major conflict right near the city of Haran, uh, which is where Abram and his father, Terra and their whole caravan left, and his father, Terra, died in that city before Abram actually received his orders to go to the land of Canaan while he was in Haran. So it's, it's quite interesting. Um, so how do we relate this to it? So now we know in Babylon, Marduk was there. And in, in Jerusalem, there were all these, these t- discussions of these horrific back-and-forth skirmishes between Babylon and Jerusalem. And, and you, you recall that Babylon got sacked, what was it, circa 580 something? And, and Marduk was the chief deity of Babylon, right? And he, they took all the priests, all the scribes, all the metallurgists, all the blacksmiths, everybody that had any function in Jerusalem, and they held them captive in Babylon. Well, this was where they first got the opportunity to see the Sumerian texts and the Genesis accounts that included things like the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis. And, and, and in my belief, from what I can tell what they did, and they were probably absolutely scared to death of Enlil. They wrote an account of, of the Sumerian account 